welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind and I am joined, as ever, by my co-host Tom Mills. Hello, friends. Tom, we are back. I think our listeners, they are owed an explanation for our silence, for our our absence. Um, I have been uh, busy working on a writing project. I've been working on a... um, an extended piece of work related to the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. I can't go into more detail than that. Um, Suffice to say that I'm working with a very interesting group of people on a composite text um, that will explore uh, Peterson's breakthrough publication, uh, uh, 12 Lives. So look out for more about that. Can you really not say any more? Well, I can say some more, but I'm not sure how how useful it would be at this point. No, no, I was just curious as to what extent you talk about Peterson himself, because you said it was the Peterson phenomenon. So the book focuses really on 12 rules for life and antidote to chaos, mm-hmm. um, which is Peterson's self-help book came out last year and will be published in paperback in May. And the book is the book we're working on is really a critical summary of that. Um, it doesn't go into the um, the great bulk of Peterson's Apocrypha, which is to be found on YouTube, uh, and in his Urtext, Maps of Meaning. Uh, the reason we haven't done that is because it's just, it's just too much to wade through. Reading, reading that book is hard enough, frankly. Um, so we're going to con- concentrate is on... Is that hard work then? Hard, like, is it... Because I've not read it. Is it yeah, it is. Quite it dense? is quite a difficult read. That's it's kind of surprising that... Um, I mean, maybe this just reaffirms, you know, general faith in people's intellectual capacity, but it's strange it would be a bestseller and so popular amongst angry teenage men if it's, like, so hard to read. I don't know, actually. I mean, I think probably a lot of a lot of people come to it already predisposed to commit to it um like one of the interesting things about him is that he is you know he is someone who's he's a a creature of the algorithm in a way right Mm -hmm. i mean like he's got millions of views on youtube and had millions of views before um this book came out so an awful lot of people who are kind of wedded to the brand uh, already and when you when you encounter difficulty or prolixity or complexity, um, but you you're convinced already that there's something there, I think you, you you can wade through it quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's striking about the conversation around him is how much of it revolves around the first chapter in the book. Mm. Um, now, I'm not saying that most people don't get beyond the first chapter. Not for um, you to say, is it? But it's not for me to say, but certainly if I wasn't if I wasn't looking at it, as it were, as a publisher, I would I would have struggled to, to go all the way through it, probably, because um, it's very repetitive. Um, it's sort of like occasionally really offensive and really re- and often just just wrong. <laughs> it's like an, it is an interesting read. Um, yeah. But in that sense, it's, like you say, it's interesting that it's been so successful when in many ways it's such a. Um, such a strange book because um, i don't i mean I, part of me wants to read it but i don't really have enough time to read for pleasure let alone for hate so i just don't know if it's a useful 
use of my time, really. Well, this is where a, a, a you know a critical summary of, of the sort that I've been working on, Tom, is going to yeah. be a huge help to a time poor scholar such as yourself. <laughs> yeah, but you're it's, doing me a service and I'm probably doing others. You a service. I'm, I've been working for months on something that will be of use perhaps to one person in the UK. Um, no, but it's uh, it's exactly the, the kind of jet-setting young professional like yourself <laughs> who's, who's gonna who's gonna benefit from having a um, a, a critical summary of. of it's, it's an executive well, summary, Dan. It's an executive summary. Yeah, it's, so it's you can... for the sort of the go-getter. Yeah. In the airport lounge. Down in Huel, reading your <laughs> little... <laughs> your, your summaries of significant texts. It's going to have a Huel-resistant cover and um, it's going to be seen in all, all all the business class departure lounges. You know, that's exciting. So when is this out? Um, we will aim to put something out, um, to put the first sort of edition of it out Um to, to coincide with paperback publication of Peterson's book in May. Oh, May. Okay, excellent. Well, we have to have you back on the show, Dan, and you can talk about it in more detail. Well, I'll see if I can if I can hustle my way past the <laughs> gatekeepers, the, the MSM gatekeepers, um, yeah. troll the podcast universe, um, and talk about it some more. But um, it's been fun to work on because I've been working on it's a, it's a, as I say it's a composite text. Um, I've brought together a number of people with sort of particular areas of expertise. So what we end up with, I think, will be quite an authoritative response to um, the factual claims that Peterson makes. Yeah. Um, and it's not it's not a dismissive text in the sense that we're not we're not it's not. Like, I think on the left there's a tendency to be too quick to dismiss Peterson, and I think that in a way plays into his hands. Um, because it's that sort of dismissiveness isn't going to cut it with um, a lot of people who are who are as it were committed to him um, and find him in some ways useful. Um, so I think. Well, so you get the impression it's, he he's the kind of guy who wants people to sort of just get angry and dismiss him, doesn't he? Because like that that's is that that's part of his sort of thesis, isn't it? About the left is that. Um, there's a sort right. of yeah. angry refusal to um, engage in intellectual arguments and, and all of the rest of it. That's right. It's a kind of the idea is that left wing left wingers are sort of motivated by resentment against life and uh, resentment against those who are successful in life. Um, and so, yeah, if if you sort of if you sort of focus on the fact that he says ridiculous things and sort of point out that they're ridiculous. Then you are going to you slightly end up fitting that that caricature. I think it's more effective to sort of pick out the you know to sort of try and understand as it were the technology of of the text, like figure out what the text is doing at various points, um, because some of it is um, is very clearly within a um, as it were a technology of self help um, where repetition plays a part where the kind of like very sort of made up schematics play a part um, and the kind of percussive use of language to drill into the reader um, these sort of ethical principles so that you come away from the text, you know, from a, from a well-constructed self-help text, you come away with a, a, a temporary sense um, that you figured something out and that things are going to be different from now on. And there's interesting research that says that a self-help text 
that will have that elevating effect on mood for about six weeks. That's um, quite a long time, actually. It is quite a long time. It's about the same amount of time as you can expect to have an elevated, elevated mood from a, a concussion or from electroconvulsive therapy. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's something okay. uh, there's something about the way. Probably healthier than being hit on the head or electrocuted, though, isn't it? Well, yeah. is it though? Is it? I guess um, it depends on the book, doesn't it? I mean, it does. I mean, like that's the thing about Peterson, which is uh, like that he says some like in the text there are um, some really very unnerving things going on. Which no, obviously... no, I'm not. Obviously, I'm not defending Peterson. I was I was thinking more about like self help generally. I mean, presumably. If you have a sort of spring in your step for the right six months of your life, that could probably uh, do you some favours, right? Yeah, like. and it, that would, you know, and it, you could see why if that if that coincidence was to take place, like you, you know, you get a bit more confidence, and then something good happens on top of that, and it's sort of, you know, these things, as you know, as we know, you know, good things or bad things tend to sort of ramify. Yeah. Um, and you get in these sort of virtuous or vicious circles. So you can, and you can see why if that if that coincidence of elevated mood and and a, and a good life change happened, then you'd recommend the book, and you'd invest it with certain sorts of almost sort of magical powers. Um, it's um, uh, it's also useful. The, the effect is temporary, which means that publishers can keep coming out with these things. Um, oh Christ! So, I was at the airport like in the summer, and there was this like two shelves worth of this kind of somewhere between sort of business management books and self help. So it, it was like a Harvard Business School series or something. Like, this is a bit of a shitty anecdote because I can't remember any of them now. But it, you know, it was all like sort of wellness and all of this stuff, um, which you, you know, it was, it was somewhere between sort of business entrepreneurialism, self help, and um, you know, like sort of wellness, mental health, so stroke, self-esteem stuff. But like, there's just something like, like, just super depressing about that kind of meeting of worlds. The you know the the genre has always been it's always been closely in, in, integrated with the sort of business and sales culture. Um, so some of the most successful uh, texts are like how to make friends and influence people. Um, Norman Peale, I think, is a is a really important figure in the kind of salesmanship um, doctrines about you know how you you know you present a positive personality and so on. So I think it's always had a, a quite an easy relationship with commercial culture. Um, uh, but you're right, you know, in recent years, things like mindfulness, for example, have been very heavily colonised by business culture. Um, and are seen as a way of like sharpening um, your performance at work, sharpening the performance of your organisation through promoting wellness or promoting mindfulness or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and again, it's, there's an interesting sense that the left has been, I think, prematurely dismissive of self-help as a genre, in the sense that the the you know the what self-help is doing doesn't isn't isn't the right as it were response to individual unhappiness but it is answering a need it may you know it it's like it may be saying the wrong things but at least it's picking up the phone Mm -hmm. um and i think on the left there's been a temptation to sort of think that if you get the politics right then this the sort of the ethics or the you know the self 
will, will take care of itself sort of thing. Um, uh, and I think that is, uh, that's obviously not, that's not universally true, but I do think we, we would benefit as a, as a culture from looking more carefully at, at individual unhappiness um, and what collective responses to it might look like. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the sort of default position on the left has always been, you know, we're we're looking at political uh, questions and political structure and 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 the, anything that sort of sounds like individual psychological explanations for, you know, sociological problems, if you like, tends to be sort of um, easily dismissed. But then there's there's also, I, I think there is also a strong strain of the of the left that you know, has been influenced influenced by. Um, you know, uh, Freud and um, psychiatry, or psychoanalysis anyway. So th- there is that. There is that, you're right. And there was, you know, I think the left, but in the mid-century, the left spent a huge amount of time really trying to synthesise Freud and Marx, isn't it? I mean, if, mm. there, if there is a sort of mid-century left project, um, it seems to be around trying to synthesise those two traditions. Yeah. Um, um, but what what I think is what what's interesting to me is is like you know we often say well actually the, the responses to um, individual unhappiness are collective and I think that's fundamentally true um, in in all kinds of ways but we spend very little time talking about how to make a success of collective endeavours um, just I mean it's like we don't we don't spend I mean a, I may be just being ignorant, but I don't think there's a great deal of popular material out there exploring how we can organise better, how we can look after each other better, um, how we can avoid some of the pathologies of group organisations, how we can avoid sort of you know cults, how we can avoid um, various forms of psychological and other forms of exploitation, sexual exploitation or, or whatever it happens to be in groups. Um, and how we can achieve a genuine sort of egalitarian liberation um, through various sort of organisational forms, certain sorts of um, attentiveness, if you like. Like, it, it just seems sometimes we think, oh, well, yeah, if we, if we say, oh, we should do it together, that's your job done, right? <laughs> it's like, well, exactly how do you do it together, right? So if you look at something like the... Um, the therapeutic tradition around, you know, associated with the 12 step program and Alcoholics Anonymous and stuff. Now you can, you can criticize that obviously for, in, in lots of ways, but they've given a lot of thought to how you organize a meeting, like what, what the structure of that meeting might look like, um, how people can be made to feel welcome and so on. And again, I think that's something that on the left, we have been too slow to sort of try and systematize. It's kind of around that and I mean I, I don't know if you not so much broadly on the left but if you think of the sort of horizontalist left and the sort of period of of Occupy there was definitely you know the answer to that was yeah I suppose this sort of um, fairly committed sort of horizontalist egalitarian you know, yeah again and I think that these are these are clearly these are lived 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 traditions right in lots of ways but it's striking to me that there isn't as far as i know and again like readers are you know uh, listeners are very welcome to write in send a postcard Mm -hmm. um like 
if there are, you know, if there are sort of texts on, uh, you know, like, you know, classic texts on on the on sort of horizontal organizing and so on, I'd be very interested to know more about them because, as I say, it may be my ignorance, but I just I don't think that they're very well. Put it this way, they're not very prominent in the culture. Um, it's not like if you said if you said oh what's a good self help book right there are famous self help books. Um, if you said what's a what's a what's a good good book on left wing organisation right there aren't classics of that in the same way. Um, but but as I say maybe I'm just crashing the ignorant. Um, Dan Dan would like you to write in everybody for those who are listening do um, that wasn't a rhetorical move. Get, no, that really wasn't. I'm really keen to know. And if you can tell me that I am indeed crashing the ignorant, then that some little masochistic part of my soul <laughs> will enjoy you that. Catch Dan on a good day. He won't block you on Twitter. Probably, <laughs> probably. I probably won't block you um, if you're if you're respectful um, and you and you make positive suggestions. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So that's that. Um, Tom, you have been working as a as I understand it, as an academic. <laughs> <laughs> I have, yeah. No, that is my job. Um, my day job, my evening job, my night job. Um, and, you know, this is obviously um, something on the side. But, yeah, it does t- end up taking a lot of my time, really. So, like, if you sort of say what I've been doing, like, chances are I've been probably, like, teaching or doing various um, admin bits and bobs that are associated with being an academic in this day and age um but if you ask me specifically what i'd achieved uh, apart from giving lectures and uh, i don't think there's anything i have to report as such um, i mean on balance would you say that the neoliberal reforms of the university have been a success tom well the thing is though i'm kind of new to academia so um my my experiences are quite are quite limited so i don't i don't know what it was like you know, before the near near liberalisation of the academy, but um, right. you know, right. you only hear rumours. But then, actually, to be fair, like I've spoken to people who've been in academia a lot longer, and I don't, I don't think the change in terms of like uh, workload is was any different. Like 10, 15, it maybe even twenty years ago. Um, the I I think the main changes has been the sort of ratcheting up of you know these various metrics, which um, everybody has to work towards and um and and game and uh and, and report back on so i i think i think that that's certainly increased and marketization has, has has made it all worse but i think i, I get the impression that the academics have always been very busy i mean it's a, it's a strange thing really because you you think yeah you'd have a lot of time to sort of to read and write in academia but the, re- the reality of it is you're, you're constantly moving from one task to the next and trying to juggle what you're doing you know planning to do in the short term medium term and long term and it's just like my initial sort of feelings on it I say initial I mean how long have I been a proper academic I guess like th- three years or something like that um, is it's just much more hectic than than you would imagine really and I think particularly going from PhD to what they call early career researchers is like a, with a PhD the challenge is to sustain a high level of of work on relatively little pressure um, and to, to to maintain focus on one particular project and yeah. then you, and then you move very very quickly to a very different sort of work rhythm which is to try and yeah just try and manage um, and juggle lots and lots of different tasks and 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 
try and ensure that everything's sort of holding together in a, a coherent way on your and you're moving in the right direction which yeah I mean this is probably just more you know you never know whether this just reflects your own me finding something difficult or if, if everybody finds it difficult really who knows everyone's too busy to um to discuss these things really anyway so <laughs> in answer to what i've been doing um yeah i've just been working i'm trying to get like a few research projects off the ground well i am getting a few research projects off the ground uh, one of which might be interesting for the show but i don't want to talk about it yet because i don't know if it's going to work um but if it does i think it could be interesting so um let me report back on that in a few weeks um that's that's a little little uh, tentative um arrival for the for the podcast well, that's, yeah. uh, you heard it here folks tom has yeah. committed tom to another episode in which the next I tell weeks. you about at some point in the future um <laughs> and you know that's actually that that's official now so you can tell other people about that the the embargo <laughs> the embargo yeah. has been lifted um, an announcement will be made and now um, it'll also be made on twitter this afternoon that i am doing something and i can't tell you what it is or whether <laughs> whether it will lead to anything or when yeah. i'm going to do anything but it will there is a thing there's, there's a um, thing now wait we, we um we basically the proximal reason for this episode is that while we have been very busy with uh, very important projects elsewhere we also wrote a piece for open democracy uh, UK last week, which is available online, um, and it is looking at a, an experiment that the BBC ran the week before. Um, so that was uh, Friday before last, where they brought in what they describe as a representative panel mm-hmm. to um, to work on the news agenda as it pertained to Brexit. That's broadly speaking what they were doing, wasn't it? They were there for a day in the BBC offices, newsroom somewhere, um, and they were invited, presumably, to comment on the running order of Brexit stories. I don't basically we don't really know yet what what they did. It was a short clip. No, I, I, I get the impression that they were actually advising editorial decisions and that they did shape the output. So that that's definitely the impression that's given from from the coverage so that clip it's not it's not clear but right. in in some of the other um i mean that's a bit, unless we've missed something that i mean there wasn't much when when we started working on the piece so unless yeah. something's come out since that we've that we haven't seen it's it's not completely clear yeah like you say what what the nature or extent of the output was but it, yeah. it's definitely beginning the impression that it was kind of like you know we would like to see more of this and, and that that did inform um, there was something sort of substantive there. Yeah. I mean, what I mean, what we I mean, our response to it, I think, really was to say that this is um, this is a welcome uh, innovation. Well, it's a welcome start. It sort of breaks a certain sort of taboo around public participation in editorial decision making that has been kept really very, very um, strictly um for all of my lifetime like in the uk it's been very hard to you know to find examples of of um non-journalists being invited into the editorial process in any any sort of systematic way um and it it has interesting parallels with developments in constitutional um drafting processes where uh representative groups of people 
are becoming really like a necessary feature of constitution building now. Uh, I think it would be very difficult to, to have a constitutional convention um, that was not preceded by at least um, uh, uh, the workings of a uh, of a uh, citizen's body that was was chosen at random to be representative of the population at large. Um, and there's a kind of interesting left right split in constitutional design where the right is, I mean, broadly speaking, I think, defined by its desire to keep the process as technocratic and as insulated from popular pressure as possible. And the left, which is concerned to use um, random selection um, and public's assemblies created through random selection as uh, as an important contributing part of any constitution building process. And so if that's going on in the in the in the in the efforts or the processes that create the fundamental laws of the society, um, the idea that you can't do that in the media seems to be increasingly indefensible. It's like if if 30 or 100 people um, can make really influential um, decisions about things like um, uh, abortion rights or, or marriage equality in the Republic of Ireland, the idea that similar bodies couldn't play a useful role in in developing a, a news agenda seems completely um, balmy. The, um, the discussion around it on um, Newswatch, which is the BBC's um, like uh, you know audience feedback type program, which re- which reviews the BBC's decision so they had they had Kamal Ahmed on there who who was interviewed by the presenter and one of the questions that the presenter um asked of uh Kamal Ahmed was was around the professionalism of journalism which was interesting because it's like obviously this you know the the assumption rooted in a lot of the existing editorial culture and structures is around the idea of journalism having a particular expertise and be able to make judgments as to you know, what should and shouldn't be in news bulletins and so on. And yeah. actually, I think I think it's what it's something we should do a show on, actually, is what <clears throat> what what we see. The, and it's it's a question that I I often get asked if I give a talk about, you know, democratizing the BBC or something is, you know, do what should the role of expertise be in such a system? You know, what what should the relationship be like between like a, a jury type form yeah. And, and and experts and and what role do the journalists play in that and I think it was it was interesting actually that Kamal Ahmed was quite sort of um yeah unapologetic about the idea that he said you know we're still still adhering to professional values of accuracy and so on so it's yeah. still regulated by Ofcom yeah um, but it's about building a stronger relationship between the journalists and the audience I mean just to bring it back to the BBC stuff I mean it's uh this was particularly interesting for Dan and I because we'd been arguing for forms of democratic public participation in um, editorial decision making. I mean, Dan's been pushing for that for years, a long time, a lot, a lot longer than I have. So this is, I think, I think this is the only example in the UK, isn't it, of this kind of initiative? Is that right? Yeah, certainly. At the, at the, as far as I know, the BBC, um, you know, there are there are obviously media outlets that have a, uh, as it were, a democratic constitution. So that, you know, members of, of the Bristol Cable and of 
um, the ferret in Scotland, um, I believe, have some, as it were, editorial voice um, as members. They ex- but they exercise that, I think, through the AGM. I don't think it's an ongoing process of participation. And given their scale and um, their relative lack of resources compared with the BBC, it's, it's hardly surprising. But as yeah. you said, I think this is the first time the BBC have uh, are, have experimented with this. I mean, you're... Your point about expertise and the relationship between expertise and, as it were, democratic um, uh, democratic reason, if you like, mm. uh, is interesting. Again, in in the context of constitution building, there's there's, an, there's, there's a, a much more powerful um, and much more venerable profession than journalism at the heart of the constitutional design process, which is, of course, lawyers. Mm. Um, and they have been you know, for a long time, it was just assumed that it was only lawyers who could write constitutions. Um, and they have be, really been, I think, effectively routed by um, the examples, not just in the Republic of Ireland, but also in, in Canada, where citizens panels have been shown themselves perfectly capable um, of, of designing um, uh, new constitutional, um, new voting systems, for example. Um, famously, a Canadian newspaper said that um, the Ontario panel, citizens panel, came up with a voting a solution for, for voting reform um, that was was um, was perfectly sensible, but completely undermined by the way in, way in which it was achieved. That's to say, by citizens working together. So there's still a prejudice against this sort of participatory me- mechanism, but it's clear that, that that citizens are capable of acting. Um, uh, very effectively, and so the idea there is that experts are on tap but not on top. That's mm. the kind of formulation. So you would want journalistic expertise and experience to be very much in the room, um, and you would want them to hold fast to, um, uh, you know, very strict professional code in terms of like um, accuracy and so on. Um, but but if if you want to know, as it were, what the public wants to know about, then it, it's really not up to journalists to, as it were, get a Ouija board out and um, sort of try and divine it, you know, by looking at the flight of birds or looking at tea leaves or whatever. You just ask people. <laughs> right? Twitter. You just see we actually get people in a room and talk to them and then you find out what what their, you know, what their shared concerns are. I guess for me, like it, it sort of touches on the question though of what what are the actual expertise of of journalists, and I think, I mean that the, there are sort of aesthetic and um, sort of expertise around production, and you know the ability to put together, you know, snippets of uh, stories in particular times, and understanding of how that technology works, yeah. and so, so on. Technical set of skills. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think that you know there are clearly there are a set of technical skills. There are there are a set of learn skills around being able to you know present shows and 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 do you know conversations live and those kinds of expertise that we plainly don't have um based on this podcast but then at the same time i mean there there are obviously some some professional uh norms which are reflective of yeah the sort of legal and regulatory requirements but again i mean i think well, when I when I'm mindful of expertise, like yeah, I would want journalists in the room. But at the same time, I think 
you know, most journalists should really be deferring to experts elsewhere. You know, you, if you're a, if you're a reporter um, on, you know, business and the economy, you should be you should be making good use of academic economists, really. Um, wherever we may think of the economics profession, if that if that's your beat, then you should be intelligently anyway, engaging and making use of those expert voices. And I think for me, one of one of the things I found a bit I found a bit frustrating in the way that journalists tend to think of themselves is that basically I think you know over over time and I think this particular case of the BBC there was a sort of shift that took place whereby journalists came to think of themselves precisely as a sort of you know professional group uh, of the likes of uh, of lawyers but I think if you look at the, the reality of the context in which journalists operate yeah. um they that professionalism a good part of it is just in internalizing certain a certain political um yeah that's an interesting you know? that's an interesting point i mean i think professionalism journalism as a profession is a much stronger tradition in the united states than it is here yeah uh, i think that until quite recently journalism here was seen as a trade um and had a sort of craftiness to it um, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, t- Tom Burns talks about this in his, his study at the BBC in the um, late 60s and early 70s, is that he, he goes back to the BBC in the early 70s. And they all started calling each other professionals. You know, right. so-and-so is not professional, so-and-so is professional. And it's become this real, you know, in that short space of time, it become this kind of yeah. uh, language yeah. of how the, how the BBC operates. And I mean, I, you know, if you like sociologically, I think you could think it's like, you know, when Bourdieu talks about fields and their, you know, that how much autonomy they have, I think he he has his, his book of journalism. He talks about, you know, the journalism being very close to the field of power, which is just sort of his slightly idiosyncratic way of saying that journalists aren't actually independent of the state, basically, yeah. um, and, yeah. and the ruling class um, in Marxist terms. So I, to me, that that's the key thing about expertise. It's like, you know, if you want a journalism that does what it claims to do, i.e. reflects the public interest, then you need to, it needs to be independent of the state. And if it's independent of the state, it can't just be a distinct, you know, independent interest group, because then, yeah. well, it's just going to end up serving its own interests and the particular sort of class composition uh, yeah. that it I reflects. Mean, Kissinger said, what he, Kissinger once said, an expert is someone who caters to a defined constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, yeah, if, if we want, I mean, journalism. I mean, journalism. Going back to journalism as, as it were, as a as a as a, 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 a collection of expertise or a collection of skills. I mean, there are things that journalists can do that they're good at, um, and you would want to put them to use at the service of um, of the public. Yeah. Um, you know, there are. You know, investigative journalists have skills. They have various forms of um, uh, familiarity with various ways of getting information and so on um, yeah. they tend to be very kind of shady about what those skills are because it's that really is their value is their ability to to work these things yeah. um, so there's a sort of there's a sense in which they you know journalists are almost like magicians they can't really give away their tricks um, and as you say it's it's sort of it's strange to think of them, uh, uh, therefore, as a profession in that way. It's not like there's a body of medical or legal knowledge or an equivalent. You know, you could say, oh, you know, he's read all the journalism textbooks. <laughs> it's like 
it's something else is going on there yeah um, actually it's like going back to the bbc i mean in, in uh, it's interesting you say that because in in that period where they start to call themselves professional actually they start to say they start to develop more sort of explicit policies uh, as in they start to write them down but at that point there, there's a sort of um you know very english sort of oh we we learn things practically you know we have this sort of unwritten constitution at the bbc and they start to write down the policies i mean i think basically because they're just coming under more public pressure basically yeah um yeah yeah, they 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 do they slightly move towards that at the bbc but these documents really don't even become you know public documents in in the same way as now you can look at the bbc's editorial guidelines although you know people tend not to but they are there um these these become these sorts of mysterious constitutional documents that start to circulate so it's interesting i mean i think in that context you know what this very small move this very small step towards a hopefully small step towards um democratization at the bbc you know may signal something quite significant in terms of the shape of these kinds of institutions i mean well obviously that's what we have we haven't really said where people can find the article by the way it's called um it's called entering the secret castle uh, a small step towards democratic public media and it's an open democracy so you can google it but well i will put a link in the show notes or try yeah. to anyway yeah no as you as you say it's it's a hopeful it's a hopeful development um and it it could be the it could be the beginning of something um very, very significant um for for how these these institutions um justify themselves in the future um your point about responding to pressure um i think is key um the bbc is trying to find ways of steadying itself and frankly justifying the license fee um Mm. you know they are staring at a a post-television future right it's like the old days where you would sort of unthinkingly get a tv license because you had a tv like a few like more and more people haven't got televisions um so that the, the old kind of half conscious or you know um implicit sort of um requirement to have a tv license i think is is fading and they're going to have to come up with a a, a new narrative if they're to, to, to survive in institutional terms and i think our job really is to strike a bargain with them um we've said this before right if, if these institutions are to survive then in exchange, they are going to have to go through a really quite extensive process of transformation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, our job is to is to push them towards the light as far as we can. Um, now, speaking of pushing people towards the light, I think it's fair to note that the new statesman has made some good hires recently. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not drawing a straight causal line between my shouting about the Fabians and how the New Statesman was irretrievably awful, um, and their and their slight shift towards um, uh, a more appropriate left wing position, um, but it is it is to be welcomed. Um, As the, a social scientist, I think what we should do is if you shout at a different institution um, on this show every I don't know couple of months or something, and right. then we just register and monitor editorial changes and then i think we can build up a pretty compelling case um if we do that so we could start with the guardian and 
<laughs> no, no, we'll start with the Observer. We should do that in a few weeks. Um, the Observer, let's face it, the Observer is the sickly wildebeest in the herd. Uh, <laughs> if we were going to, if it's we were a going centrist to... bull, Dan. I don't know what you're talking about. It's, it's the strongest. Uh, it's the strongest of all of the uh, all of the outlets. It is a. It is a. It is the monarch of the centrist glen. Um, the um, the Observer is an extraordinary thing. I, I have to confess, I haven't looked at it for a long time because I see absolutely no reason to do so. The thing uh, is, I it, funny enough, it's it's the paper that I'm most likely to buy, just simply because it's the day on which I'm most likely to buy a physical newspaper. I mean, it's still very, very unlikely that I would do so. But if if it would happen, it would be that day. And I'm not sure what the other newspaper would be on a Sunday. What what would you? Well, buy? I I have jumped because I'm a creature of fashion. I have jumped on the, on the Financial Times bandwagon. Oh, well done, um, Dan. That's very highbrow. Amber Lee Frost wrote a piece about how she reads the FT, not the New York Times, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, I, and I've pathetically thought ever since, I must get around to buying the Financial Times, because that's what all the cool leftist kids are reading. One um, of the perks of my job is I get access to it, free access to it. So, But that's online yeah. rather than um, the newspaper. Yeah. Um, so I did, and I so I bought the FT yesterday and actually read an awful lot more of it um, than the, the rare occasions this year when I've bought a um, a normie uh, Sunday newspaper like the Sunday Times or the Observer, mm. much which is just like why am I why am I reading this? Right, what what's like this isn't necessary. Do you know what I mean? It's like a lot of it is like well what's the point of this? This is just stuff. Yeah, I I do struggle with it. I have to say. Um, but um, did yeah. You enjoy, well, uh, did you enjoy the FT, by the way? Are you going to buy it again? Did enjoy it. I found it useful. I found it interesting. Um, I mean, their 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 cultural content is like often hilarious. Like, so you can read like reviews of restaurants in like China, like a friendly Chinese restaurant in Shanghai or something like that, and you're kind of like. Well, that's not necessarily going to be much practical use to me, but um, it's nice to know it's there. They do like um, home recipes and stuff like that, sort of sort of London lifestyley stuff, like the Observer does. There's a piece, there's a piece on Jackson Heights um, in New York. Uh, so yeah, the the lifestyle stuff. Is I don't know what that is. Jackson Heights is a it's um it's an area of New York. It's not far from where they were planning to have the Amazon, um, uh, you know, the big Amazon headquarters. Oh, okay. I think it's so. But so they're sort of they're they're kind of lifestyle stuff is like international, is it? Yeah, it's much more thoroughly global. Why um, not go and have a coffee in this place in like a Berlin next week? Exactly. Yeah, like you know what? Um, yeah, what's the? Uh, yeah, I mean it's like you know it's insane. How how, how as if there was a little feature on property in Fulham. Um, there were yeah there some and why not um but there were you know the the point i suppose was fulham like, the new london neighborhood up and coming <laughs> the, exactly the undiscovered gem <laughs> um, <laughs> it's um often it's, overlooked um, by its more affluent neighbors uh, <laughs> <laughs> fulham is in fact full of beautiful victorian townhouses uh, well-ordered parks <laughs> um but there was, you know, like there wasn't a huge amount of whining about um, how awful Jeremy Corbyn is. Um, there was a, like a big piece on Italy's trading relationship with China, which just seems like it's just a, like a more rewarding use of your time. Yeah. Um, 
like a funny piece by Gillian Tett talking about how many hundred dollar bills there are in circulation and sort of skirting around the fact that it's presumably all about crime. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it just like the Observer is by comparison a very a very pallid thing. Um, mm. It just doesn't. Um, uh, Mandelson's favourite newspaper, the Financial Times. So you're a good company. Well, there's, you know, there's, you know, Chomsky famously reads the Financial Times and stuff. I mean, it's like he reads the New York Times as well, though, which is probably presumably a lot. I mean, I don't read it often, but it seems a lot closer be, to the Guardian, right? He must be hate reading that a lot of the time. I would. Have I think it's like but, no, but it's because it's got like good. Like, although it, it, its politics are terrible, like it's got very good um, international coverage and stuff. So basically, you, you'll you know what's happening and you'll know that you're being lied to about what's happening. But you'll usually get relevant quotes. And, you know, I, I think that's the thinking, unless he is just sort of uh, a pioneer of like Twitter style hate reading, which is <laughs> perfectly possible. I mean. yeah, maybe, maybe. Anyway, so we've we've had it. Well, we've had a go at the new statesman. We've told them off and they've yeah. hired Grace they got their ship in order. They've hired Chris Bailey and they've hired Hetty O'Brien. Mm-hmm. And I think those are those are that's good. And Hetty's been on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not saying again, I'm not saying that we Grace were, has not, but you know. Grace hasn't been well, we I did ask her clumsily once. Um, but she she was too busy or didn't come on the show. Anyway, um <laughs> they are um they're thoroughly good things. Um so it looks like the New Statesman is being nudged um, away from its centrist death spiral. But, but um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, I mean, when we talked about it before, I and mean, we did go into a little bit of the history, and it, it, it oscillates a lot, doesn't it, between sort of different different versions of left-wing politics, but but, but basically does seem to follow, it, it, albeit with a, a sort of a delay, some of the twists and turns of the Labour Party. Is that fair yeah, to say? I think that's I think that's right. And ultimately, it will it will take its coordinates from from Labour. What's What's amazing to me is is for how long the general assumption um, in the kind of penumbra of Labour institutions, the general assumptions being that Corbynism is a temporary phenomenon, uh, that it will this will all go away. Um, and they can go back to um, their old sort of coordinates. I think that's getting more popular again, like in on the right of the party. But it's interesting, yeah, that, that it's kind of bedded down. Oh, do it's, you... Yeah, it's they've they've come back really hard with this recently, which I I suspect might be something to do with local elections uh, and the need to um, uh, do as much sort of to create as much disruption as possible in the run up to the elections. But but. Um, yeah, the 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 fact that you know hundreds of thousand people could vote for Corbyn, hundreds of thousand people join the Labour Party to vote for Corbyn, um, and the like. The New Statesmen have been like, oh, this will this will all this will all blow over. It's like this is a major shift, right? What? Why wouldn't you get with that? Um, but having said that, you know there is a there is a tendency for for um, publications to take on some as it were emblematic writers um while maintaining the editorial core position mm. um and i think that the new statement frankly has further to go um and you've not forgiven it yet we haven't we haven't quite um but um you know 
they're, they're, as I say, they're making they're making encouraging moves. And I think so let me should... ask you: Are you going to start reading the New Statesman? Well, let's not get too let's not get carried away. Um, no. It depends. Uh, well, it depends. It depends on whether they continue to produce must-read articles or start to. Um, but um, magic on the observer. Yeah, would, uh, no need to thank us. What would a good version of the observer be like? Mm. I mean, that's a that's an interesting question. Uh, it seems. Yeah, well, me. that's good. Let's let's do it. actually. Uh, let's do a show on the observer. We can we can frame it around that question. Yeah. If we were going to relaunch like, it, what would we want from it? People do say, oh, wouldn't it be great to have like mass media assets on the left? And it's like it would be great, but like in detail, what does that look like? Like what what do we want? Like what do we like? Yeah, I mean it's a chance to reimagine a newspaper, right? I mean. Yeah, exactly. Let, let's imagine that you got the call and you were the new editor. Okay. I mean, I did make myself available. I made it very clear at the time when they were looking for a new editor. I said that I would, be, I'd be willing to take it on for a couple of years. Yeah. I didn't commit to it as a long-term thing, but I said if they wanted me to go in and spend a couple of years sorting it all out, I was, I was willing to do that. But I love on the carpet for uh, a couple of years and then, and then out, and then you could write a book about it. Well, quite. Or yeah. do a podcast. Yeah. Now. Um, so that's that. Um, we've been talking. Oh, I always say this. We've been talking only 50 minutes. Um, the final thing on the agenda is just a little chit chat about Twitter. What's been going on on Twitter? So what um, has, you know, I don't I know. Thought, what well, the reason why this got on the agenda is that I was just being a bit miserable about the website really um, the other day. So I mean, it, it is a ghastly place. It is appalling, I think. And, and it's, I frankly, the tone hasn't been improved by the way in which it's been used by blue tick journalists. Um, Do you know what annoys me, Dan? It's like, I swear there's been a change in algorithms to try and get people out of filter bubbles, which actually just creates it, make, <laughs> makes it even worse. I mean, I was sort of like, on the one hand, I think that, you know, filter bubbles are in the main a bad thing in the sense that obviously as a society you want to have like collective political conversations but I just I'm just sort of I mean I, I t- tweeted this yesterday and I don't know if it's just like I was in a bad mood but I just sort of feel like given that Twitter is not a good medium for you know personal interactions and resolving disagreements and the rest of it why do I need to ha- see people who I like deliberately don't follow because some other people follow them and what and also why does twitter always show me people replying to other people disagreeing with them it, you know it's almost like an invitation to join a pile on that algorithm don't you well, think that's right and i think that you know one of the things that's crazy making about about these platforms is we don't really know what the hidden wiring how the hidden wiring is sort of connected right we don't know what the algorithm is up to yeah we don't know what the intent behind the algorithm is either and the suspicion has to be oh well if we encourage like engagement um if that includes like negative engagement then so be it right now you could imagine in a lot of interest areas hearing from people you haven't heard from before or or hearing from people you don't follow or seeing exchanges between two people who've adjacent to you um in as it were in your in their interest but you haven't met before like that could be a positive thing but in the context of politics it almost always means that someone's saying something you find really offensive um and as you say it's like the the net effect is to encourage um these kinds of um 
really sort of you know like something about the the form leads to these sort of live or die kind of confrontations doesn't it like if you're engaging with someone who you disagree with on twitter there's this kind of sense in which you're engaged in a duel right yeah, i mean all... you kind of are though like yeah. i mean it kind of brings it brings out the worst in me really because i just end up being really snide to people because i just if, if i can be bothered to engage with somebody then you know you have a very long exchange and i mean it's quite nice if you can actually i always approach arguments as trying to think you know get to the bottom of why you dis- disagree with each other rather than sort of waiting until the other person Makes agrees that you're correct because otherwise yeah. you know it, you never reach that point and i think you can get there but it just depends you know like today there was some some bloke just sort of popped up on my timeline so you know i made some sort of dismissive remark and and then it sort of went backwards and forwards and then it was like why aren't you engaging with me and it's just like that i mean basically the reason why i don't engage with people like i have profound disagreements with is that I just don't think it's going to be a very useful use of both of our time and you know if you're if you're really busy as well and like because that's the other thing that Twitter sort of because it's basically designed to be an addictive medium yeah it always interrupts you when you're doing things so like you know I tend to look at Twitter when I'm making tea so if I'm working you know I'll be like marking or, or doing lesson prep or something I'll have like a cup of tea roughly every hour and look at Twitter and then, you know, your your phone or if you've got it installed on whatever app you're using, sorry, whatever device you're using, it's always designed to try and draw you into it. And I don't know, it's just it just doesn't seem like a very healthy. I mean, I think it, I think it's very good in some ways for like building uh, networks of, you, you know, like like minded people. And I think sure. I think it's very good for information sharing, but I just don't feel it's very good for anything else really and i think i wouldn't mind to see the back of it although i've you know i have become connected with a lot of people i like and admire on there so yeah i guess you've got to balance it against that really yeah there is that there's definitely that i think um again it's like what uh, it's always i think sarah to think about what a better platform might look like Mm. like what what you know if you could strip out that um that exploitative need to to foster um, addiction or foster kind of overuse in a way, um, like if you if you step back from that and think, well, what's actually, what 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 is Twitter good at doing? What would we want to preserve about this form of of um, micro blogging? Um, but what would we what would we want to add to it? I think that's a really useful question. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think a lot of the, a little, frankly, a lot of the shortcomings in it as a, um, a, a as a platform are intimately connected to its um, business model, you know, um, and they they they're not necessary features of online engagement. Um, there are, you know, there are places online where people are managed to have a much more um, in-depth conversations. Um, uh, and much be- they're much better at achieving you know real consensus or or as you say kind of clarifying the nature of the disagreement yeah um, I mean I think I think it's easy to exaggerate I mean I, I think you're right that a lot of it is to do with the sort of the need to sort of hold audiences and and create what basically sort of yeah addictive platforms for the sake of advertising and the rest of it 
I mean, I think also probably a lot online. I mean, if you're doing political stuff, like basically politics is is conflictual and, you know, it is going to involve disagreements. And yeah, I think it's a sort of degrees, isn't it? I mean, I think places, some platforms will be more useful than others. And um, and some issues are always going to be very tense or um yeah very conflictual by their nature but i i just feel like on that continuum continuum twitter seems to be you know quite a long way along i mean i was thinking back to like new left project where we which is a website i used to edit uh the which when um you'd have comments on there and they were always moderated you know uh, and people said to me like who 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 read the website a lot although you know it was nice because people would actually have constructive political discussions in the comments but the reason was that you just didn't allow people who like there was a very high threshold for getting your comments on right so i don't i don't think and actually there were a lot of abusive and unhelpful comments but we just didn't let them through yeah and we were quite strict about that and i think you know, we're not quite, we've not quite, I think, got to a point yet where we can confidently, confidently say, oh, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, it's not something I'm, I'm that familiar with, but we're not quite a point yet where we can confidently say what kinds of technologies will facilitate, um, you know, more positive engagement. I don't know, or to what extent it's a, a feature of what, what, fe- what I'm saying is what that there will be problems of all kinds of online platforms, I think, and it would be about trying to look at what the best the best forms are and how we might be able to accentuate and, and develop yep. those. Yeah, and as I say, um, I think there is a tension between that and the commercial imperative. Um, yeah. There's also, frankly, a, a tension between that and um, the, as it were, quasi-professional need for certain sort of groups in society to believe that other people are um, incapable of reasoned debate. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of what journalists do on Twitter is, is sort of orchestrate opportunities to show how unreasonable and unpleasant other people are. Yeah, so true. Uh, I mean, and everyone does this on Twitter as well. Like you, you know, if you've got lots of people responding to you and you want to scapegoat, you know, the other side in a political argument, you just pick out the most offensive or stupid comment. Yeah quote tweet and just you know yeah check out um, this check out this egg um yeah. you know and making again, some kind like, of stupid racist comment and this goes back i think to the the like the real potential of um the you know public bodies chosen at random because they aren't that they're they're not on the line in the same way um as a as it were a blue tick twitter personality right um, in a body uh, of the kind that um, we talk about a bit in the article, you can change your mind, right? You can decide actually you've looked at the evidence and you can change your mind. If your job is to is to serve a constituency, you know, as an expert, like you work for Murdoch and your job is to promote like a certain kind of centrism. You can't change your mind. You know, you go out there like a gladiator and you you fight with the, the weapons that you've been given. Um, you don't turn around and go, actually, I don't want to be a gladiator. Well, I want to be a Christian. It's like that's just not an option. Um, so, again, there's an interesting question to ask about what 
how would technology enable the kinds of transformative, mutually transformative conversations um, that char- characterise democratic deliberation at its best? Mm. Um, w- in what ways can we can we develop technologies that aid that process? Of- yeah, I guess, I guess the big one, isn't it, is is trying to reduce the sort of uh, egotism that's built into the um, into the sort of Twitter social media um, format, you know, where you're having to align yourself with particular positions and be seen to be right, and that your sort of status and following on the platform is, you know, is, is sort of bound up with that, and yeah. that also creates that. I mean, kind of ironically, it seems to create also a sort of uh, crowd mentalities as well, because you know, I, I have to be, you have an individual brand and persona and you have to be seen to be right on particular issues and to yeah. have a have a take and a timely take and you know it creates these kinds of um well tw- you know the sorts of twitter storms that go on regularly where people can't you know you won't remember them two days later but when they're happening happening it's like the yeah. thing that's going on and richard seymour's been writing a little bit about this lately about the the kind of the the addiction to social media and the role that it yeah. plays on the left that i found quite provoking and yeah he, you know he's 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 often very very um illuminating isn't he and you're right those piece that piece about um the perceived need to be to be quick and to have a, a surprising take which we uh, on this show have never um never entirely fallen into it have we no no we've avoided that trap uh, <laughs> completely by talking about things weeks later we wouldn't you wouldn't come to, to us that's a like, deliberate uh, that's a deliberate strategy of the show well, it's, you know, it's a sort of, it's a form of cool reasoning, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, it is. Um, we, don't, we don't do hot takes because we hot um, takes. we're too cool for hot takes. Um, good. Well, listen, um, we were going to do a short show and it's not a short show. We've been talking for an hour and I think um, we should wrap it up. Unless there's anything else you want to add at this juncture. No, there is not. Just you're still with us. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, we're back. Um, no promises that we'll be back again. <laughs> but we're back. <laughs>